Welcome to Greycast, exploring the world of Greyhawk one podcast at a time. This podcast is all about bringing the classic world of Greyhawk setting to life through Greyhawk creators, Greyhawk lore, Greyhawk streamers, Greyhawk stories, and of course the vibrant Greyhawk community of gamers. Thank you for tuning in and let the exploration of Dungeons & Dragons' most classic and revered setting, the world of Greyhawk, begin now. Well, welcome. It's time for another episode of everyone's favorite and still, we think, only podcast that's all about the classic D&D setting, the world of Greyhawk. My name is Wally Hobbit, and with me on this episode, of course, our scintillating co-host, Mateus. Hey. Hey, and then we've got a treat for you, but we couldn't get them here for this. So we have <laughs> Casey Brown, or Draco, or Draco, or Draco, however you like to say it. Casey is with us. Casey, how's it going, man? It's going great. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Here. Yeah, with Aricon going on, you couldn't get anyone else. We are thrilled to have you on, and I'm just kidding, man. I, I usually try to insult our our guests within the first 30 seconds, uh, just quick out of the gate. But no, seriously, um, I know you from many, many appearances on uh, Gavin at the Peaks, on the Lord Gazumba Twitch channel, um, and from seeing you in the two discords that I frequent that are tied to Greyhawk, uh, Cannon Fire and Greyhawk Online. And you've always struck me as not only a fellow with an amazing sense of humor and wit, but a ton of Greyhawk like lore and knowledge and experience and stuff. So we are absolutely thrilled that you could hang out with us today. And we're going well, to be talking, we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite spot on the Greyhawk map, the big dark smudge north of near Div, also known as Rift Canyon, but more importantly, all the stuff around it, we call the bandit kingdoms. So uh, yeah, bandit kingdoms. It is. Um, we usually start, our interviews with the same question for all of our guests. And I want to understand, uh, you know, tell us your D and D slash Greyhawk story. How did you get into D and D? When did that happen? And, you know, Greyhawk and all that. Yeah, sure. Uh, D and D started fairly early for me. I'm 48, born in 73. Uh, my earliest memory is sometime around, I want to say first, second or third grade where a classmate brought in, something I believe now to be one of the earlier editions of the game and had character sheets with the shields for the armor class and uh you know all the old school character sheets very designy artsy and uh I don't remember how much we played back then but I do know that by the time I was say seventh grade living in England I was buying box sets mm. uh in fact before that when I was in fifth and sixth grade living in Chicago, I bought a teacher's kid was selling his AD&D stuff. And it was a lot of money. This was in the 80s and I was a kid and he was selling like the whole collection for was $75, but it was the Fiend Folio, the Dungeon Master's Guide, the Player's Handbook, probably wow. all the hardbacks from AD&D first edition at that time. 
and I begged and begged my mom. And I think I had to do a lot of chores uh, and buy that collection. Um, So I had Beck me the complete all the way up through immortals uh, set. I don't think I ever had OD and D. I don't think I ever had um, BX. Um, Mm -hmm. But, and then when second edition came out, I was in uh, nine, uh, seventh, eighth, ninth grade in England. And I remember buying the second edition books and being like, wow, the art is so much better. Yeah. Uh, The rules are a little bit, you know, improved here and there and things like that. So I also was getting like the Greyhawk Adventures hardback book. And I have no idea when I picked this thing up. Uh, I don't even have a thing right in cover or anything like that for the date, but I know I've had this for. Um, I have various box sets from Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk hmm. going back to the 80s and 90s. I just can't find them anymore, but I know they're somewhere. Um, I, you know, the Flaness, you know, the, the Free City of Greyhawk, the Emma the Flaness is lying around here somewhere. Greyhawk is lying around here somewhere. So I'm pretty sure I alternated between Greyhawk and the Forgotten Realms. Uh, and I was kind of the always dungeon master as early as high school. Um, but that's kind of the short version. I think that a lot of people my age will mm-hmm. uh, experience getting into D&D. Nice. Excellent. So you've uh, agreed to tell us all that you know about the Bandit Kingdom. So let's first talk about uh, geography. Where can we find the Bandit Kingdoms on the map of the Flaness? And what are some of the prominent uh, geographical features of this landmass? So I tend to think of it as the North Central. Uh, Anna, Jay, and the others may think of it in, you know, slightly different East or West. But to me, because of Living Greyhawk, the Bandit Kingdoms was part of the uh, the northern reaches, the Ayus Meta region, consisted of uh, High Folk and Paraland and the Shield Lands and Furyundi. So to me, the Bandit Kingdoms is north central. It's north of the Near Div. To me, the Near Div is the heart of the Flanness, even though there's plenty of stuff over to the east of the Kingdom and Sunday and all that stuff. I, I never really messed with a lot of things other than the Free City of Greyhawk modules you know g1 through three and things like that i just loosely had them set in places Mm. and really never did much with the bandit kingdoms until living greyhawk Um, but that's how i describe it and then major features are obviously the rift canyon uh the felry forest uh tangles forest to a minor extent the bluff hills don't get enough love uh the edge of the rift mountains pretty small in the grand scheme but you have a lot of wild open plains in the tangles and the Felry forests as well and you kind of have the deadlands around the rift canyon the rift mm-hmm. barren uh, so in general i think people can equate bandit kingdoms to say montana badlands and some part that part mm-hmm. of the u.s the, the dakotas montana um, yeah. idaho geographically uh, for the flat land. Probably pretty chilly in the winter based on the uh, latitude or the longitude. I forget which one is the horizontal one, but uh, it's pretty far north. It, it is. It's fairly north. I think it's separate, you know, regular, normal 
Um, I, I'm here in Massachusetts these days, so I suspect hmm. it's close to Massachusetts, New Hampshire. Yeah, like there's a real winter, but but still the summers, you know, you get all four seasons and the summers are really nice. Right. Yeah. And, and it's not on the ocean, so uh, it's inland. I can imagine when it gets hammered with snow, like maybe there's lake effects snow coming off the near div, but it goes north instead of yeah. east. I, I don't know. That'd be a great question for Anna. Or yeah, that there's a giant lake to the uh, west of the Horn Society, the West, it's a, uh, never pronounced this correctly, still lake. Why is still, why, ew, yeah, that is a tricky one. Why yeah, maybe there's lake effect snow that comes off of that, goes over the Horn Society and bumps on the Bandit Kingdom. That's right. But That's Bandit awesome. Kingdom is a region that yeah. is fairly undeveloped. And if you want to set something in the forest, boom, you got a forest right there. You want to set something in caves, you've got the Rift Canyon right there. You need hills or ogres or whatever, you've got the Bluff Hills. It's kind of a hodgepodge and it's uncivilized. It's still one of the places where you could do a points of light in the Greyhawk if you really wanted to. It's got four or five major cities. Uh, but in between those, you could just have a very Witcher type feel to your peasant mm -hmm. villages. And looking at Anna's map here, it doesn't look like it'd be the best place in the world for farming. It's not like Keoland or something where you've got lots of good irrigation. It looks like there's a lot of hills and mountains. It looks like the ground here would be pretty rocky. Yeah, and I think it's probably mostly for grazing. It's probably wild grasses for sheep. I think uh, in canon, they maybe have mentioned that the Yo Rays in the town of Kinemeet or Kinemeet, however you want to pronounce it, were known for horse trading. I think that was like one sentence in one, I use hmm. the evil or something like that. And if we pull out Living Greyhawk Gazetteer, I'm sure they go into a little bit of detail on, uh, you know, what the Bandit Kingdom can do. But farmland, it down south of the Rift Canyon, it is supposed to be better farming in the great lands of the Rehu. Mm -hmm. um, and probably the Principality of Red Hand as well. It's near the near Div. It's going to have a more southern climate. South of the um, Delta from the Artansame River, providing moisture and humidity. Nature. But yeah, if you were between the Tangles and the Felbury Forest, we always kind of imagined it as a, a grassy plain that didn't grow things very well. There wasn't a lot of nutrients in the soil, uh, things of that nature. The fell, yeah. even the tangles, probably used to be one forest. Well, we went back hundreds of thousands of years. But they're so, different kinds of trees. Maybe. I'm so, so give us, um, give us, if you can, a a short synopsis of the history of the bandit kingdoms. Like give us the, tell us the story, uh, bird's eye view uh, stuff. Noting, of course, you know, the diff, the changes from 576 to the Greyhawk Wars and the 591 living Greyhawk stuff. Wow. Th this is actually the part where I'm not an ancient scholar of the bandit kingdoms. I'm very focused on what happened once I use arrived, but my high level overview would be that uh, this part of the planet, the Bandit Kingdoms, the Shield Lands, etc., were part of the outer reaches of the Great Kingdom, right? The Oridian nations. And were kind of left to their own devices because they're so far from capital. 
and they had some minor nobles out here who were trying to play at being bigger nobles over the local Flan tribes. So up until I think about the 300s, that's pretty much all you had going on. Now, in ancient times, we do know that there were Flan and Ur-Flan presence here in the Banda Kingdom, specifically in the Felgry Forest. Um, there's something called Neural's Bane, which is a strange feature of the Felgry Forest where like uh, the dead cannot be brought back to life. Mm. So it was a sacral a sacred burial ground for the plan. I think that goes back to the time of Vecna uh, and things of that nature. But up until say about the 300s, uh, you had the Oridians playing as um, you know, lords over the land population. And then about that time you started getting robber barons uh, and bandits who were able to throw off the nobles or the really minor nobles the Iridians, uh, and begin to carve out their own little kingdoms with just mercenary armies. Um, and the town of Rukrus is being founded and developed. Um, probably that's about the time that Stoink started big. It all probably starts happening about the same time. Uh, and as that happened, the, the people, the Flan people became less subjugated some of them probably became some of the bandit robber barons. Uh, so some parts of the area of the bandit kingdoms we would play with in Living Greyhawk would have a little bit more of a Flan influence, but in general, we had them pretty well into Ridian and Flan. Mm -hmm. They've both been there for hundreds of years. Um, not a lot of ancient dungeons in canon here. We, we created some for Living Greyhawk. Uh, the Rift Canyon, obviously, you can put anything you want in the Rift Canyon. It's going to make sense, whether it's right. Paizo's Age of Worms, Adventure Path, or we put uh, an Illithid Mind Flayer City under the Ooh. Tangles Forest uh, that was accessible through the Rift Canyon. Uh, you had the god Cayuse doing things in Worm Crawl Fisher. So, uh, really strange place where you can do yeah, that's you the want. beauty of that is you can kind of do whatever you want with that because it's just a big black open spot on the map and it's huge it, it is and we always argue about you know they talk about how deep it is and anna has some really great points when you map it in 3d it's really not that deep because it talks about whether or not you can see sunlight at the bottom. Well, if you look at how wide it is, it's really just kind of a valley, like a, a, a mountain valley, but in the ground. But I like the idea that it's like a mile deep. It has steep sides and you can't see the sun from the bottom and that there's like a ecosystems at different heights. Right. You have different yeah. types of ecosystems. You get to the bottom and it's like, to me, a land of a lost vibe we had dinosaurs down at the bottom, um, displacer beasts, uh, remorazes, I believe, um, kobolds, uh, and of course my favorite, Morgan Staller, the red dragon at Rift, who hangs out on the eastern side. He's a living Greyhawk creation that I adopted hmm. uh, and took charge of. Um, and once you have dragons, I associate kobolds. Dragons, I know people right. will argue faced earlier in ditching kobolds, but I'm on board with give me little 
reptilian servants for the dragons mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to Gosh, know, you clean, could... clean their scales and pick their teeth clean. Are, are there known uh, connections into the Underdark and from the Rift Canyon? Are there like tunnels or, you know, it, things that, I mean, you could certainly put them there. There'd be a great place for them, but uh, is there anything I, in the lore? That's actually a question I can't answer. I have to suspect yes. Uh, I think Gary Holian would really probably beat me over the head with newspaper not being able to answer that, but uh, I, it has to be, right? If if you have the original Underworth, you know, then the Rift There's got to be a way in. Yeah. Right. It, there's probably tons and tons of ways into it. Um, we didn't really deal with that because Living Greyhawk didn't let us use Drow without special permission. And without Drow, there wasn't a ton of incentive to go underground right. except for that Illithid city, which they were controlling Uyghur, Dark Dwarves. Um, but mostly everything for us was above ground and in the canon, like, and I use the evil, it doesn't focus on drought except for Lavdra and that's Minzo Baranzan and that's wherever the hell, or not Minzo Baranzan, excuse me, uh, Irilai, can you, mm. yeah. I, can, I don't know if I pronounced that correct, but, um, the other big drought city. Yeah. I'm sorry. I said Mer- Minzo Baranzan and people are going to kill me, but we've seen a lot of Ed Greenwood on Jay's show. So I'm going to blame that. There you go. If it's good enough for Ed, it's uh, it's more than good enough for me. That's right. Now, now when I was um, prep, prepping to have you on, I read LGG on the Bandit Kingdoms. And then okay. I read the old stuff, the, the folio, the box set. And the folio has a paragraph, and Bandit Kingdoms in LGG is like one, two, three, like three, four pages, four, five pages. Yes, yeah. almost six pages. I think it's. It's a solid it, entry in the Living Greyhawk as a tier. Where does all that info come from? Do you know? Dragon magazines. I want to say fifty-six and sixty-three. Um, and I can verify that shortly, but I believe those are the hardcore canon references uh, for the Bandit Kingdoms pre uh, the wars, the Greyhawk Wars. Um, and the reason is that's where I, where Gary Gygax detailed the armies of the Horn Society, the Bandit Kingdoms, and maybe even the Shieldlands. I believe in those articles. Um, I think those are the correct numbers. I'm trying to verify that, but they're easy to find uh, if people want to uh, look them up after the show. Uh, and in those, they talk about, they give a brief rundown of like, oh, Rehu has 400 cavalry and the name of their leader is X, Y, and Z, and he has these class levels. The Principality of Red Hand is led by Zeech, and he's uh, a fighter, falling cleric of Hieronius or Hextor. It's very scant very brief details and then authors of the living greyhawk gazetteer just combed through i use the evil and the other canon references and then fleshed out what they could and gave paragraphs things like if you look up uh, abara which is in what we would call the midlands it's right near the word free on anna's map for combination of free lords um 
Abara was actually called Kor because in one reference, the leader's name was Kor and in the other reference, the leader's name was Abara. So they named the land Kor or they named the land Abara. They couldn't make up the mind <laughs> in canon. So the living Greyhawk Gazetteer people had to sort that out and they just settled on Abara for the land and Kor, K-O-R, for the leader. Um, so, so there's some, that's why you see on her map, Abara parentheses or AOR because it's still right. Yeah, I see that. So there's there's a lot of old weird canon stuff that you kind of have to sort. I kind of like it though because to me the whole region, the Bandit Kingdoms, uh, and on her map it's in quotations. The whole thing because it's not a really politically organized. Uh, country or kingdom, you know, it's not a real political organization. There's 17 different fiefdoms or kingdoms or areas in there that are under the control of various individuals or groups. Um, there's, you know, to me that that just gives it a bit of mystery. Um, and it kind of makes sense that the history isn't, you know, it's a little sketchy or it's broken in bits and pieces and it's not necessarily accurate. Um, I like it that way. It kind of it just adds to the, the mystique of the whole area uh, to me. So at the end, an, it's like, wow. It's an interesting <laughs> take. It, there certainly should be a lot of misinformation in that region because no technology, no internet, no phones, a couple of wizards maybe sending or message spell or drew. Right, right, right. But it's thieves and assassins. Yeah. Right. But right, exactly. You have a chaotic neutral population who doesn't like each other, doesn't like their neighbors um so they certainly don't care about keeping honest or real or relaying information in any sort of um meaningful understandable manner um so yeah you could certainly look at the history of the bandit kingdoms as unreliable narrators so when you're looking at this region in the history moving back into history for a second and we get up into the Greyhawk Wars. Um, does does I does I use just basically roll right through this place? Uh, it's like like and oh. how does I, and how like how does he like it, it, when we when people play in the five nineties early six hundreds? Does is this all his stuff? Like what what's going on? That's a great question, and that concerned a lot of our brain power. That used up a lot of our brain power during the Greyhawk. All we know about the Bandit Kingdoms during the Greyhawk Wars basically comes from I Use the Evil. And I'm sure there's a little bit of stuff in the Greyhawk Wars box set that's meant to be played out, probably troop sizes uh, and things like that. But in I Use the Evil, we get a much better sketch of which of the Bone Hearts. And for the audience, the Bone Hearts are the high-level spellcasters dedicated to the old one I use. Um, which of the Bone Hearts were leading which of his forces through which nations at what time? But it's also very sparse. And if you read I Use the Evil closely, there's about three Bone Hearts who died during the Greyhawk Wars. And like only two of them are named. Mm. So they didn't even name the third guy that got killed in Fury Under the Shield Land. So I took that information during Living Greyhawk and extrapolated it out to what it should really look like. Um, I used to be in the U.S. Army, so I'm not an expert by any means. I was only in for a few years, but I've always had a little interest in war gaming, even though I never got really into it. Hmm. In my head, 
even though I didn't play Greyhawk Wars, I just kind of marched them through the Bandit Kingdom. And knowing what I knew from Dragon 63 or Dragon 57, I was like, okay, what would happen? And the short version is from Canon. I used his army, rolled up on the Horn Society, and just the, the Blood Moon Massacre, right? We know from the Gord novels what happened. Uh, the Hierarchs all get slaughtered. The Horn Society gets defeated. And I use his army, rolls through the Horn Society, probably absorbs a lot of the evil humanoids, whether they were lawful evil or chaotic evil. Earlier editions didn't really care. I think orcs were lawful evil in first edition, and then they became chaotic evil in later editions. But anyway, um, absorbs a lot of the forces from the Horn Society. While this is going on, bandits from the Bandit Kingdom's Western group of nations, the Warfields, Babara, Wormhall, uh, and there's probably one other, uh, maybe Freehold, had been forced by the Horn Society in years past to raid the Shieldlands. The Horn Society would say, hey, we're going to come kill all your women and children unless you agree to raid the Shieldlands and or the Rovers of the Baron for us. This is canon. We know all this from the old Dragon Magazine articles. Mm -hmm. Well, while the Bandit Kingdom's people were in the Shieldland in 576 or whatever it was when I used his army was rolling, word reaches everyone of the fall of Molag. And the Horn Society people are like, hey, we need to go back and fight Ayus. And the Bandit Kingdoms all say, F you, we're going home. And they all hightailed at home and they spread word of Ayus's impending arrival throughout the Western and Southern Bandit Kingdom. Some went to the Rehu, and then that, you know, goes over to the Principality of Red Hand and the Duchy of the Artonsome, where Duke Geller from the Gord novels is, and goes north to the Warfields and then to Abara and Wormhall and Freehold and Brook Roost. And so they were actually able to organize a defense against the Iusians as the Iusians were trying to cross the Ratinza River which becomes, I believe, polluted with the dead bodies mm. from both sides and the foul magics and the demon blood and stuff of that nature that occurs while they're trying to keep the Iusians from crossing. But eventually the Iusian forces, uh, led by various personages, including uh, the Lady Vendra, I believe, who's in canon from I Use the Evil. Uh, I think I put Kranzer, the Boneheart, in charge of one of these forces because uh, he needs to get to Rickrag. That's where he ends up in canon. So I had him leading part of the army. Eventually, they overpower the bandits with their demons, their magic, their orcs, uh, magic and orcs. And they force them to join them, basically, or to stop fighting. And then they continue marching. And then so they get to the Freehold and the Freehold has a castle. Well, they flee into the southern Felry, the, the people of the Freehold. The Iusians take over the castle and they use magic and demons and they turn it into Fleisch River hmm. uh, or Flish River, however you want to pronounce it. But to me, it's an obvious play on words for like uh, uh, ripping apart flesh yeah. is how I meant. It must be some fake German word for Right, that. right, right, yeah. <clears throat> and we know that Boneheart's conduct magical experiments 
in that tower once the change has been completed. That's also in I Use the Evil, I believe. Uh, probably both Snull and Jump so get into are referenced. Some, some necromancy. Yeah, they're in the middle of nowhere. Oh, if they accidentally unleash some monsters, they're not in Doraka or anywhere they care about. They can unleash monsters into the Felry Forest on purpose to harass the elves there uh, who always are going to fight them, uh, the human survivors. And even there's a group of orcs in the Fell Reef who are anti-Iusians because they just want to be left the hell alone. Right, right. Um, so the Iusian army keeps marching through this kind of like big open highway that is the middle of the bandit kingdom. And they reach an area south mm, west of Rook Roost which is controlled, it's called the Midlands, I believe. And it's controlled by clerics of Hextor. And clerics of Hextor aren't going to back down from any fight. Yeah. And they've got like one castle, they've got some knights, and they've got their, you know, well-equipped forces, and they just get just smushed. You know, you get, I don't know how many people it is in it, but in my head, it's like a 30 to 100 person you know, fortified castle that was bugging people on the road to Rook Roost and keeping the peace, you know, the kind of the evil militant way of Hextor. And then here comes a thousand or 10,000 Iusians and they run them over and continue on to Rook Roost. Uh, Rook Roost surrenders. Um, the leader flees to Blackmoor. He's uh, like a ninth level illusionist. And we know that he actually flees to Blackmoor. Um, and so an Iusian demon, get, a shape-changing demon gets installed as the leader. And over hmm. the years after that, uh, Living Greyhawk Gazajir tells us he just impersonates people, it, but he's the same leader of the town. Anytime someone assassinates the leader of Rook Roost for the next 20 years, it's the same guy faking his own death. Right. And um, comes in as the new leader, air quote. Right. Baron Kurzinen, I think his name is. And he's pretty awesome. And we had him as an NPC in Living Greyhawk. Yeah. Um, so just a lot of fun, real powerful. And and he's on loan to IUs from Grazit. Again, this is all deep. I use the evil stuff. Yeah. That we got to play with. So once the Iusian army reaches Rook Roost, the rest of the Bandit Kingdoms is like, that's our trading capital. We're really in trouble. The northern countries of the Fell Lands and uh, the Grosskopf, you know, they surrender. And in exchange for them being left alive, they have to go fight the rovers of the Barons. That's kind of the deal that hmm. they make. Um, or they have to raid into 10. Uh, the Yo Rays put up a fight. They, they're very lawful, neutral. We envision them as worshippers of St. Cuthbert and Stern, yep. Alia, and, and that type. It's a nice mace uh, on their, or a morning star on their heraldry here on Anna's map. Yep. Right, a very no-nonsense kind of group. They're not actually bandits. They're more like a normal, feudal European, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'm trying to think of a good word for a small country. Um, stuck in the kind of surrounded by these lawless bozos. Yep. They're horse traders and they would host the markets that would be neutral. 
territory so all the bandit leaders could come there and they knew that at least the hosts weren't trying to get it. Right. So they get taken out by the Iusians. And again, none of this is really detailed in I use the evil. It just kind of says a large group of orcs takes over nine meat or kinemy. Right. I flesh that out to be that the Yowars were ready. They were on their horses. They were ready to kick some ass. They've been training all their lives for this. And then a huge, nasty storm comes in, turns the ground to mud. The horses can't charge. Uh, and the demons who have no problem flying in the rain and the lightning and have dark vision just come in and, and kick their butts. And the Yowars have to flee. And we know that they do flee. And they get scattered and they form mercenary companies all over the northern central part of the planet because there's a reference to yo rays and mercenaries are the best mercenaries because they always keep their word they never try and cheat you they don't yeah, change lawful. sides right yeah. they're lawful neutral so once you have this have them signed to a contract they're either going to do what you hired them to do and die trying they probably all have the same dream of returning to kinemite to exactly. reclaim their former glory and so forth and so on well yeah. they're low their slogan in Living Greyhawk was like, until we meet in Kinemite ah. one day or, or something along those lines. And that was an organization characters could join. And players might say that to each other if they knew they were both in the organization. Right, right, right. South of the O-Race, you have Rift Crag and the Rift Canyon. And I believe there's silver resources around the Rift Canyon. So I use once the silver to fund his economy and his marching army and things of that nature. So he very quickly installs uh, Kranzer in Riftcrag. Kranzer, I think, sent people off to fight Dimray. I'll get into that in a second. Uh, he was part of dealing with the Duchy of the Arconsume. And a lot of this, this is you know a little bit of a plug here, but in my book, um, Probably better than I'm describing now. I actually have a timeline of the Bandit Kingdoms that starts right at 576. Right. And so if you want to read my narrative of this march through the Bandit Kingdoms in great detail, there's, oh, I don't know, is devoted to that. And a lot of it is things I took from I Use the Evil and then expanded out. Mm -hmm. So the I Use the Army then continues east towards Dimray. Now, Dimray, the only thing we know about them is that they are Fultons, but they are not Fultons from the Pale. They are lawful neutral. They worship something called the Ebon Gleam sect, which is heretical to the Pale. Uh. So you have this splinter apostate offshoots. Again, lawful people surrounded by these crazy bandits, and they've carved out their little theocracy there. And these people, we made them hardcore, self-flagellating, no-nonsense, ass-kicking, lawful neutral Fultons who are like, you know, instead of saying, like, may you see by the light, they're like, no, may you be blinded by the light and we'll cast a light spell on their hand yeah. and in your face to try and so, blind you. So these are your, your Fulton fundamentalist uh, eye for an eye, hand for a hand hardcore <laughs> yeah. uh you know human supremacy we didn't get into that too much because we don't really like that but they had lizard yeah. folks slave yeah, slaves yeah. i believe uh because there were some in the fosswood and we wanted to touch upon like they're not good they're, they're yeah. fultons and they're not good 
So they actually put up such a fight in canon that they forced the Iusians to a treaty. Uh, and I explain this away as incompetent leadership because Kranzer has left the army. Zavindra had left the army. It's just I put some no-name bozo black knight of Ayus in charge. He was probably like third level. He he thought he was a Billy badass. And uh, this is all my own head cannon that I put in my book. And Dimray wasn't scared of the demons because Dimray was a nation of clerics. And so they just called out Voltus and they smote the demons, drove away the darkness, forced the Iusians to a treaty table, and the Iusians said, Okay, never mind. Forget you guys. You're cool. We're going to keep and moving. Turned south and went into the Duchy of the Archonsme. And this is another nation which was not super well described in canon. Uh, again, Duke Geller references from the Gord novels. The county of Ernst is across the river. It's near the town of Stoink, but the Stoink uh, part of it has no real major towns, even though it should on the river. So I just gave it a little narrative that the Iusians came in. There was one castle. The Iusians kind of crushed it. Uh, Rene helped defend it because I had the Rene people being tradesmen who uh, traded a lot with the Duchy of the Artansame because it was, you know, it's a nice navigable river at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my head canon, a very powerful female Rene witch held Kranzer off at bay, if I remember correctly, in my story for a little bit, long enough for people to flee and get out of there. But before she eventually had to flee or got self-killed, the Iusians take over a castle, the the uh, capital of the duchy, and they turn it into Wraith Deep, uh, where they create a whole kinds of undead, corporal and incorporeal, and they patrol the roads uh, that come mm. from the south and the east, anything that would lead towards Rift Crag or the northern bandit kingdoms, that road is patrolled by undead. So that's another canon bit, Wraith Keep. Oh, yeah, there's a little castle here, Wraith Keep. Yep. Uh, yep. On one of the roads on the west border there. Yep. So then the Iusians continue south and they finally get to the great lands of the Rehu, which I think is the only breadbasket in bandit kingdoms, as we mentioned. Uh, earlier maybe before the show or uh, at the beginning of the show and the rehu people flee they, they've heard that people have been getting their ass kicked for a month except for the dim rights um, and so they flee and they go in two groups one group goes into the rift canyon oh. and they kind of merge with bandits who had lived in the rift canyon and they were called men of the rift very yep. original name for them. Right. The other half, who were less evil and more normal, non-bandity, flee all the way up into the Felry Forest. They kind of go around the backside wow. of I use army and devastation, go around the tangles or through it, and it's not really clear. <clears throat> and they go up into the Felry Forest, and they actually become friends with the local elves after some early skirmishes and they create two very strong fortified positions called Fort Hendrix and Scorn, which are on Anna's map. Uh, and she has them inside an area called the Defenders of the Green Keep, but I'm not sure that's, I would agree with the, the borders of that area, but I also don't like to argue with Anna because she's often right. Um, so mm -hmm. the Rehu fleet, 
and the Bandit Kingdom army or the Ayuzin army makes it all the way down to the Principality of Red Hand. And by now, Zeech has heard enough and doesn't want his kingdom destroyed. He is fully converted to Hector, but he doesn't feel the need to have all of his citizenry die. He used to be of good alignment, even though he's not anymore. So he surrenders. He just straight says, you know, I will do whatever you want I use. Just spare me and my people or my family and my people. And I use says, that's great. I want you to start building me warships because it's really the only port on the near div I use has control of. And he could then use those warships to harass everywhere else. The county mm-hmm. of Ernst, the shield lands, et cetera, et cetera. This is Alhaster you're speaking of. Yes. So Alhaster becomes a town solely devoted to building these warships Hmm. uh, for the old one. And it used to be this great trading city. Uh, It's not, again, not really super detailed in canon, but because it's on the near div, it has to be a good trading city in our minds. And Lord Zeech is like, I use, sends them a whole bunch of orcs, you know, to represent uh, the Iusian soldiers. And he also gives him a Cambian, uh, I think a lesser Cambian, I forget. Uh, uh, maybe what we would call a T these days, but uh, a demon warrior to lead one of the cities that's on the border with the county of Ernst and just kind of integrates Red Hand quite a bit into the Iusian fold. And from there, the Iusian army then goes into the shield lands to join the rest of the crazy heavy fighting. Uh, or by then, uh, the treaty is announced in the Free City of Greyhawk. I forget. That that was probably a little bit long-winded, but it's a very complicated tale. Well, it I is. Had to extrapolate yeah. a lot of, and so during that entire narrative, we have things in the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer that Gary or Fred or Eric put in there or Sean that. Uh, there's a town in Rehu, and I think it's maybe Balmund, B-A-L-M-U-N-D. Yep, I see it on Anna's map here. Or Suresh, S-A-R-R-E-S-H. I think it's Balmund. The only thing we know about that town, I think, from canon, if you check the Zavoda Index, is that it's referenced, that it exists. Well, Living Greyhawk Gazetteer says... Uh, in a fit of humor, Cranzer divested himself of like four cantankerous clerics of IUs and told them they were each in charge of Balmond and then left them there to sort it out amongst themselves who was actually <laughs> in charge. Because Pranzer, as a wizard, doesn't actually care for the clerical hierarchy of the Iusians. A, he's smarter than them because he's got like an intelligence score of 17, 18, or 19, or whatever it is, and I use the evil. And B, he's powerful. He's probably 14th, 15th, and 16th level, and I use the evil. So these ninth level schmuck clerics of I use, he's like, get these guys out of my hair. He tells all four of them, hey, you're in charge of Balmud. And then that's really all we know about that town. He then goes to Riftcrag, and he's in charge of the silver mining operation, or the old one, which is a very boring job for a wizard. So he just starts conducting magic and planner plan hopping creates a and living Greyhawk. This is all living Greyhawk creates a clone of himself. So the clone stays behind a rule Riftcrag 
And that clone is powerful enough. He's probably ninth level as a clone. He can keep right. the orcs in line. You know, one lightning bolt spell a week probably scares the crap out of his soldiers and keeps them in line. While he does plane hopping stuff. Hmm. Um, he also creates a clone of Morgan Staller, the Red Dragon, that the Red Dragon doesn't know about, just so that he can experiment. Uh, and then you've got Boneheart's Jumper and Null and Fleischriver. Uh, Zavendra uh, is up in the city of uh, Grouster, which is in the Fell Lands. Uh, the Baron Kurzinen and Rook Roost. Uh, we know that Stoink's leader actually survived the change in leadership. Um, the uh, Usians tried to intimidate him with a demon, but the demon was discovered drunk in the streets of the city the next morning. And demons are immune to poison. Alcohol is a poisoning game turn. So he somehow managed to get a demon drunk mm. in third edition. Uh, Boss Renfis the Modeled. Who Boss Renfis the Modeled, yeah. Yeah, it's a great name. A lot of the Living Greyhawk guests here, and a lot of Living Greyhawk killed canon NPCs. In I Use the Evil or the Dragon Magazines, it was Boss Daily, D H E L Y, I think is. Um, my wife would kill me if she knew I remember that because I can't remember half the thing she wants me to remember. <laughs> but Boss can't Daily really. was, you know, a human thiefy boss type. Maybe he appears in the core novels. I, I don't recall. But he gets replaced by Boss Renfis the Modeled. What a great name. And in my head, he was some sort of slod. Yeah. It would take yes. a crazy powerful slod that would just stand up to a demon and be like, dude, I'm more chaotic than you. And I'm going to get you drunk. Yeah, I'm picturing like Jabba the Hutt kind of guy. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then he polymorphs into his human form to do normal thieves' guildy business and storm. Right. But when the Iusian demon comes calling, he reveals his true form. And he's probably some challenge rating 25, <laughs> you know, badass or something. That, that's all my headcanon right there. So, so you, you mentioned a book. So let's take a minute and let's get in a uh, – the hell is shameless. We're going to go proud plug <laughs> of your efforts here. And tell us about oh, your book. Um, and then we get to the end of this thing. We'll make sure to let our listeners know where they can get it. Well, thank you very this, much. This was my labor of love. Yeah. Um, the unofficial Living Greyhawk Band of Kingdoms summary. I was a Band of Kingdoms triad member from 2005 to 2008, which were years five and eight of the campaign. Year eight was the final year of campaign. I'd worked on the campaign for about two years before that. When the campaign was wrapping up, my roommate, Britt Fry, who uh, was a former Band of Kingdoms triad member who became a member of the Circle of Sick main campaign administration, and I were like, huh. Wizards of the Coast is making no effort to catalog or create a library of what happened during Living Greyhawk, even though in year zero or one, RPGA leadership had said Living Greyhawk will be where the new canon for Greyhawk is created. Um, not that everything that happened in Living Greyhawk was ever meant to be canon, but that's how they were attracting players, judges, triad members, probably circle members, by saying your efforts will have meaning. This living campaign can have an impact upon the official game world of third edition. 
But when the campaign was ending in 2008, there was clearly no effort on their part to do any sort of outreach like, hey, what happened in your region? Right, right. Just give us one paragraph, you know, or one page or whatever. Just give us a synopsis of you have the Bandit Kingdoms in the Living Greyhawk Gazetteer, which is 591. What does this look like in 598? We would have been happy to write that for them. Hell, we would have been thrilled. So Britt and I were like, huh, someone should take on the job of cataloging. What happened? And Britt was like, yeah, you have fun with that. I'm off to whatever adventure I'm, I'm off on. Britt has traveled <laughs> the world. He lived in Korea. Oh, wow. He was in Istanbul for a while. He was just kind of all over the place getting to, to travel while he worked remotely for various gigs. Oh, I said, okay, well, I'm single. I have no kids. Uh, I've, I've got a nine to five job that pays the bills. Start kind of collecting all this information and collating it. And so from like 2008, 2010, I spent a lot of time going through every single Bandit Kingdom's adventure from chronological order from year one. And I started playing in year two. I'd gotten mm-hmm. to play some of the year one stuff, but playing versus reading is different because now I'm sure. saying, oh, this is what the adventure wanted us to do. This is what right. we did. Right. This is what they were expecting. They shouldn't have been expecting that because once you start reading things as adventure paths, kind of, because Living Greyhawk had miniature adventure paths. A couple adventures would string together. Mm-hmm. There'd be plot arcs that could last over a couple of years. Then you could start seeing, oh, the triad in year one was expecting this, but the triad in year three said, we don't give a shit about that and took a left turn. And then I came along in five and said, no, no, no. The year one idea was better. I'm going back to that. I spent a couple of years going through all the adventures and making notes and deciding how did I want to organize this book? And I had the luxury of, I have a bachelor's in history from Texas A&M, and I have a bachelor's in creative writing from the University of Houston. Um, yeah, go Cougs. I went to grad school there. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah and yeah. It, it, and uh, it's a great creative writing program. And so I'm sitting there with just enough tools to be able to think I could write something. <laughs> and so I start collating the data, and I start going through the adventures, and then I start finding interactives and for the audience interactives were adventures that were run only at conventions Mm. they were only run usually once they were live events they would be the saturday night big special event at a convention yeah and so i didn't have copies of many or all of these so i had to hunt those down because they weren't distributed publicly there were plenty of conventions i never made it to as a player so i was like well what the hell happened in lubbock in 2003 and how did that impact the story of the bandit? So it took me a couple of years to kind of track everything down and get my thoughts down on paper. And I think probably around 2011, I had a rough draft of the book. Uh, and I sent it off to my buddy, Theo. Theo was a former Bandit Kingdom Triad member who's, who was deep into the canon of the Bandit Kingdoms. He used to talk to Gary Gygax like, on the old AOL chat. Oh, well, yeah. Like, yeah, because he just really loved that kind of Geller, Gord, Stoink stuff or whatever. Um, 
but so Theo's really smart and he'd worked really hard on that campaign. So I was like, Theo, will you take a look at this and tell me what you think? Am I going in the right direction? And he had some great feedback and input. And I think he may have been the one, it may have been Brit, but someone said, okay, you're talking about the adventures, but you also need to talk about the campaigns. How were uh, encounters crafted in third edition for Living Greyhawk? How did it PCs level, that kind of stuff. So then mm -hmm. in 2011, I added the front matter, which I call behind the curtain, front of the book. And then I decided like, well, while I'm doing all this, I should create uh, an appendix of the adventures by location so that oh, someone cool. in the future could say, oh, I want to set an adventure or I want to read what happened specifically in Rook if I can get my hands on those adventures um, or the yo rays or whatever. And then once right. I was like, well, appendix by location, cool. Well, then I should do an appendix by adventure path, you know? Yeah, yeah. So how did the adventures relate to each other if mm -hmm. they did, if they did right. Because we did have some standalones. Um, so I think it was sometime around late 2011, early 2012, the draft had been copy edited several times. I got to give a shout out to Sir Zarek, Zaris uh, Skip, who does all my copy editing and has worked on various uh, publications for Cannon Fire. I think the Cannon Fire Chronicler uh, came out a couple of years ago, was a project they were working on. Uh, Skip, forgive me if I got that wrong, but um, I'd sent it off to him multiple times. And finally, I think in early 2012, I had like, the proof prints ready to go. And I learned how to do self-publishing through uh, what was, excuse me, what was then called Create Space, but is now part of the Amazon self-publishing uh, Kindle Direct Publishing Empire. Mm -hmm. And uh, somewhere around here, I've still got the, the first copy of this. And I went through and I marked it up and what did I like, what did I not like uh, until eventually in mid 2012 or so, I released it live for sale. And I thought, okay, it's going to sell about 50 copies. There's going to be about 50 living Greyhawk people from the Band of Kingdom who aren't going to be completely, uh, uh, you know, like, ah, whatever. You know, they'll be interested in buying it. So it was a labor of love. And I was pleasantly surprised when I sold like 63 copies of the first. I just specifically remember that number. But that's also when I got the DMCA notice from with. <laughs> uh, uh, I've chron I've chronicled that around the web a little bit. But the short version is, uh, Wizards of the Coast lawyers reached out to me. They said, you know, we think you're fridging on their intellectual property and copyright. And I said, well, I'm not, and I can show you the book if you'd like. I'm going to fight you. And they were like, oh. You're gonna you're gonna fight us, one little grad student. Because by now I was a grad student, right? Emerson, uh, getting a master's in publishing and writing. What they didn't know was Brit, my roommate uh, at various points in my life, uh, and friend, was now living with me again in Boston as I finished this book up. And he has a law degree from the University of Texas by now. He never took the bar, so he can't give anyone legal advice but he's a co-author on the book. Uh, he's a contributor. So he can 
use his own knowledge of the law to protect his own interests, right? That's my right. layman's understanding of the law. We knew we were on perfectly legal territory because we weren't reprinting the adventures. We weren't doing something that was derivative and protected by copyright. We were doing an academic work of stuff that had happened during Living Greyhawk. I sent Wizards of the Coast a copy. And a couple of days later, they rescinded their DMCA and they said, you know, thanks. And I said, all right, cool, thanks. And haven't had any problems since then uh, with the book. So if other regional triads or players ever wanted to publish anything about Living Greyhawk, this is the template. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it like this and you have precedent. Uh, But unfortunately, everyone started having real lives, had to get real jobs, started having babies. Uh, And now that we are 14 years past the end of the campaign, like, you know, the memories are getting more distant. Yeah. uh, And time fades. So I know there's various efforts underway uh, on the Discord to try and preserve what happened, but I don't know if anyone will ever put together a book. I think one of the regions in Europe did, but it's in French, maybe. And it was... So, yeah. so, yeah. so, give us. Oh, and it sold a thousand copies now. Sorry, a thousand plug. copies. That's after that's pretty in nine years. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll take it. I was I was gonna be happy at one hundred. So, um, just in a couple minutes, speak to the DMs out there who who they've got. You know the the box set or they've got living Greyhawk gazetteer um what adventuring opportunities are there in the bandit kingdoms why why is this a good place to to set adventures that's a great and it's a good idea to keep it short because i can clearly be long-winded on this topic the the bandit kingdoms let you do whatever you want to in general you want to have elven adventures, you've got the Felbury Forest because we know there's wood elves in there. And they're actually friendly because of Living Greyhawk with the local orcs. So do you want to have maybe some attention there or do you want them working together? We know there's monsters in the Fell Reef because of you. We know there's dragons in Lake Akal, which is in the western part of the Fell Reef. Uh, we know that Davier the Lich, he has a kingdom to the west. So do you want to have like a Strahd? But as a lich kind of alternate, sorry, Stella was demanding attention. Here's my familiar podcast kitty. Yeah. Um, and you have the Tangles Forest, which is a different kind of forest. You have 15 or 17 little petty fiefdoms, and you could do before the Greyhawk Wars without worrying about the Iusian storyline at all. And they're just all Game of Thronesy. They're all fighting each other, they're trying to steal each other's gold. Uh, you're guarding merchant caravans when you're low level. You get into political intrigue. You get into Rook Roost. There's the Rook Thieves Guild, which is one of the most major Thieves Guilds on the planet. Um, you have Stoink, where, which has a more crazy Thieves Guild. Um, you have Alhaster, if you want to be kind of Hextorians and you don't want to be a paladin. You want to be more like, you know, screw you, paladin. Um because if you want to play Paladins, go play in the Shieldlands and Furyundi. That's not what the Bandit Kingdoms is about. Right. If you want to go fight crazy monsters, you can go to the Rift Canyon. 
um, ogres in the Bluff Hills. But mostly it can be a very, uh, and I'll use the term again, Game of Thronesy, because you have these petty nations all vying for power. There's a lot of assassinations, a lot of political maneuvering, uh, marriages for power. Um, so it, it's not super dungeon crawly as a region. Right. But you can throw things in. You can be like, well, this guy died in 356 CY, and he built an underground labyrinth to guard his body and treasures. And then you pull out some pre adventure and set it under the tangles mm-hmm. in the Rift Baron or yep. whatever. Well, I notice um, looking at Anna's map, there is a classic D&D adventure set just southwest of the Rift Canyon, a little uh, spot known as White Plume Mountain. Yes. Um, and the dead knoll's eye socket. Um, yeah. So the twisted I, thicket. The twisted thicket. Yeah. So, gosh, um, what a what a cool deal right there. One of the absolute classic D and D modules. But uh, that's one of the things we we like about what we're doing with this podcast is we try to give folks uh, you know the lore and all that cool stuff that you just shared, but also like how can I use this in my campaign. Or how can we how can we D and D here? And one of the things that, that appeals to me about the the area we kind of talked about it earlier is it's it's not organized as as a giant region. It's all these like you mentioned these little fiefdoms that uh, are probably no less amenable with one another than they were before the Iusians, uh, or no more amenable with one another than before the Iusians came through. Um, and so now with all of that evil and and you know demonic stuff uh, just makes it that much more treacherous and dangerous. Absolutely. And you could set campaigns where maybe you do want to be neutral, but fighting evil. Well, fight the horn society. You can do that from the banded kingdoms. You could be the defenders of the war fields or wormhole. Uh, maybe you want to play the neutral bandit type. Maybe you want to run an evil campaign. I never recommend this unless you're super mature as an adult person and a player, but if you're able to run an evil campaign, the bandit kingdom would be a great place for it before or after I use go attack the shield lands, go kill the paladins, uh, go raid 10. No one likes the duchy of 10 anyway. (laughs) (laughs) The the theocracy, the pale is is almost a next door neighbor. And then the 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 dim rights. Yeah. 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 Go cross over. Artans May River and raid mm-hmm. into the county of Ernst, or be a privateer in Prince Zeech's navy, and you could kind of almost do a ghost of Salt Marsh, but instead of being set at Salt Marsh in Seton and Keeland, you set it in Alhaster and other small towns, and you just raid around the near dive or near div, however you want to pronounce it. So just you know, a lot of possibilities. I, you know. Uh... When I when I read LGG on, on the Bandit Kingdoms, uh, the the theme that struck me for this region was this is this is the Wild West with the Grand Canyon and demons. <laughs> yeah, that's a Imagine great summary. A, a medieval Wild West, complete with a Grand Canyon with nasties inside. And now imagine that whole reason was taken over by like nasty demons and the demons kind of, they left like the, the second rate demons in charge of all the cities. And now the bandits are kind of like, well, we, we, we kind of want our cities back, but we're not, 
we also want to be bandits. <laughs> right. Because that's their economy. Yeah. They, they don't have jobs. The, the thing about criminals and bandits is they don't want to work at a cubicle. Right? right. They think sleeping outside in cold weather is easier work than making five silver pieces a day so that you could afford a bed. And if you're, if you're, um, you mentioned Beck me, if you're playing Beck me and you want to get up into the high level play and get into, um, domain building, this, this is a great place to do it. Oh, sure. A lot of people set Kingmaker in the bandit kingdoms. Yeah. Uh, the, the Pezo adventure path from Pathfinder. Yeah. I, that's a great point because the companion book, I love the companion book. I wish I could find my copy of it. But I believe companion is where you can make strongholds in Beck Me. Yep. And Master Set probably expands from stronghold kingdoms, if yep. I remember correctly. And I think that's a really great point. Uh, and you could set if, that in the BK. Mike oh, is yeah. right in, in the Bandit King. And if, if you're playing 5e and you want rules, just go get a copy of the Rule Cyclopedia. It's all there. And it's all modular. You can just plug it into whatever system you're playing. Hmm. Hey, hey, time time is running out on us here. Where can we find you on the interwebs? Oh, wow. I'm in various Facebook groups um, th that are related to Greyhawk. But online in discords, I am Ardrico, A-U-R-D-R-A-C-O. Uh, it's kind of been my moniker since Internet Relay Chat, IRC, back in the 90s. Um, and so you can send me a private message, uh, Ardrico pound 8038 hashtag, uh, number sign, whatever you want to call that tic-tac-toe thing these days. Um, yeah. I'm always happy to talk Bandit Kingdom stuff. Uh, I'm often on the Jay's Twitch stream audience or on his shows once a month, we try and do a Living Greyhawk show with various former members of the triad so that we can do deep dives into regions that I never knew anything about. Um, so those are probably the main ways of finding me. Awesome. Oh, and I have a website that I never check or deal with. It's called CB, as in Charlie Bravo, editing.com. So cbediting.com. And I've got links to like how to buy my books in addition to, I'm going to do a little quick plug. In Please addition do. to my uh, Bandit Kingdom summary, I took some of the Living Greyhawk adventures I wrote, uh, just two of them, and I converted them to Pathfinder. I stripped out the Greyhawk IP, and these are available for, for sale through like through RPG and Amazon, awesome. print on demand, things of that nature. So you can you can find stuff at cbediting.com. Awesome, cool, awesome, awesome. Well, Casey, uh, we sure appreciate you coming on with us and uh, kind of shedding some light on the fuzz fog mystery that is the Bandit Kingdoms. And uh, man, I learned a lot. Um, this one, I think, occupational hazard to do in this podcast is I want to play in every region uh, that we explore with a guest. And, and this one is um, by no means any uh, exception. So um, as a DM, I see a lot of opportunity. I can, I can even imagine doing some fae. Uh, there's got to be a couple of veils in the Rift Canyon, oh, yeah. or maybe the in tangles. the Postwood, you know, or the Tangles. Yeah, we we put uh, mushroom circles, yeah, fairy rings in the. Oh tank. yeah, God, yeah, that's a whole easily... other story. Oh, you could easily take um, if you want. Oh, you, what's his name? Um, uh, 
Gavin Norman, the guy who head of ne- Necrotic Gnome, who's who's done the um, BX uh, retro clone or old school essentials, is publishing. Uh. He's publishing his own weird fantasy, weird fairy tale thing set in a a forest called Dol- Dolmenwood, and oh. he, um, it's on Patreon, and they're 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 getting close to starting to release some stuff uh but it's intended to be slotted into whatever campaign world you're using Mm, Um, nice the tangles would fit perfectly yeah and if you need a a place to nuke a forest he nuked the tangles and living greyhawk and denuded it and there's a a messed up green dragon living there there's evil fey living there so yeah take the fey idea and run with it if if i were not familiar with the Bandit Kingdoms and running something and just wanted to go somewhere different and mess with my players. Yeah, once they have teleport, make them teleport somewhere in the Bandit Kingdoms. And if they're used to polite people, the Free City, Greyhawk or Nyra or wherever, <laughs> just yeah. have them run into a bunch of zero and first level commoners who are chaotic neutral, don't give a crap about crap, and aren't going to yeah. take any crap from a bunch of shiny do gooders. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's like the epitome of Greyhawk, uh, the spirit of uh, darkness, uh, for sure. Casey, thank you so much for taking time to, to come on and uh, talk on our podcast. Thank you guys for having me. This was a blast. Absolutely, and man. I really Absolutely. appreciated your questions. And uh, I'm sorry if I went on a little long about some of the parts, but uh, a lot of things came to my memory as you asked me these great questions. Good deal. That's what we're after. So we appreciate you sharing your passion and all your uh, your information. So give uh, Casey a look out there, cbediting.com. Uh, take a look at his book and his couple of modules. And uh, thanks for giving us a listen. Follow us on Twitter at GreatCast576. And uh, we'll talk to you uh, again in a couple of weeks. So thanks for tuning in and uh, be safe out there. You've been listening to the Greycast Podcast, where we explore the world of Greyhawk one podcast at a time. Mateus and I are excited to share our passion for the world of Greyhawk with each of you. We'll drop episodes every other Monday featuring all things Greyhawk. Please refer us to all your cool, nerdy Greyhawkian friends and allies, even your most hated enemies at the gate. Find our podcast on Spotify and be sure to give us a follow on Twitter at Greycast576 to keep up with Greycast. Until next time, remember, it's a dangerous business going out your door. You step onto the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to.